Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and we've got a new show for you this week after a couple weeks in a row of interviews, and we've got a couple weeks in a row of interviews coming up next week, so I uh, had to sneak in some news here for sure. Uh, and there's plenty to cover, and I actually had to kind of pick and choose this week. Uh, there was a lot of st- a lot of stories that happened in the last few weeks, but I picked the, what I thought were the best ones, and we're going to go through those today. We're going to talk about how Microsoft, IBM, and Amazon have all recently, in the light of the uh, the George Floyd protests and surveillance by law enforcement, have uh, decided to back away from selling their facial recognition tech- technology to law enforcement, uh, something we've talked about on the show fairly often. Uh, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that and what and why they decided to do that. The FBI is warning us again about some possible banking hacks, this time having to do with mobile applications. Uh, I'll tell you what they are warning you against there and what you can do. Uh, The Brave browser, uh, we've talked about several times. This is a privacy-first browser that is trying to come up with a unique way to pay for your attention without doing it by tracking. Uh, Nevertheless, they got caught doing something that they said was an accident, um, but looks kind of fishy. We'll talk. We'll talk about that. Google has been sued over tracking you even when you're in a incognito mode, um, which you know, long listeners to the podcast, of course, will know that incognito mode is really not what most people think it is. And but I'll I'll still go over that. Nevertheless, Google, who owns the Chrome browser, was. <sighs> Of course, tracking you anyway, even when you're in that mode. And somebody decided to sue based on a, a federal wiretapping uh, statute. So we'll talk about that. And Zoom has come a long way uh, after some of its initial stumbles with regard to security and privacy. Um, but if you want to get the full Monty from these guys, apparently you're going to have to pay. So we'll talk about that. And then finally, we'll wrap up with my tip of the week having to do with uh, voting by mail. So uh, let's get into it. All right, so we've talked about facial recognition technology on this show a lot, and obviously being a privacy nut, um, this is something that really creeps me way out. And uh, because we have no real regulations on this stuff in the United States, it's just grown like crazy. And um, and of course, it's looked like a really profitable industry for a lot of companies, and they are looking to capitalize that by selling it to whoever. Um, and one of the most interested parties, uh, of course, would be law enforcement. But this is fraught with all sorts of problems, as we've talked about many times in this show before. Uh, AI technologies for recognizing faces is usually really poor when it comes to minorities and even women. Uh, you know, some of this is obviously because these AI systems are trained on data sets and those data sets often do not represent the the populace. Anyway, there's all sorts of problems with it and we've talked about it many times before, but uh, let me read this article from the EFF, uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, responding to some of these changes. Uh, the original article was about IBM and Amazon um, and then they updated it to include Microsoft, who after this article was published, uh, also decided to jump on board. So anyway, let's, let me read this article from uh, EFF. Activism is working, both on the streets as people protest to end racist and violent policing, and among civil liberties organizations who are fighting the government's use of harmful facial surveillance technology. This week, two major vendors of face surveillance technology announced that in light of recent protests against police brutality and racial injustice, they would be phasing out or pausing their sale of this technology to police. The fact that these two companies, IBM and Amazon, have admitted the harm that this technology causes should be a red flag to lawmakers. 
The belief that police and other government use of this technology can be responsibly regulated is wrong. Congress, states, and cities should take this momentary reprieve during which police will not be able to acquire face surveillance technology from two major companies as an opportunity to ban government use of the technology once and for all. In a letter from Arvind Krishna to Congress, the IBM CEO announced that in the name of racial justice, the company would end research, development, and sale of any facial recognition technology. And this is a quote. Uh, it says, IBM firmly opposes and will not condone uses of any technology, including facial recognition technology offered by other vendors for mass surveillance, racial profiling, violation of basic human rights and freedoms, or any purpose which is not consistent with our values and principles of trust and transparency. We believe now is the time to begin a national dialogue on whether and how facial recognition technology should be employed by domestic law enforcement agencies. End quote. This is a big pivot. In March 2019, IBM was criticized by photographers after it released a new dataset of diverse images scraped from social media platform Flickr in hopes of training facial recognition programs to be less flawed when recognizing people of color. Now the company recognizes that better training data is not an effective solution to many problems of this menacing technology. Amazon, in turn, announced a one-year moratorium on police use of its facial surveillance technology, Recognition, and that's spelled with a K, R-E-K-O-G-N, I, and, you know, K instead of a C. This company also cited recent protests as the impetus of re-examining the harm this technology can do to already over-policed communities. Unfortunately, Amazon still clings to the discredited, no discredited notion that police can safely deploy face recognition technology if only there are enough rules. And this is a quote from the company. They say, we've advocated that governments should put in place stronger regulations to govern the ethical use of facial recognition technology. And in recent days, Congress appears to be ready to take on this challenge. We hope this one-year moratorium might give Congress enough time to implement appropriate rules, and we stand ready to help if requested, unquote. Amazon's recognition program has been particularly flawed and harmful. This is funny. In 2018, the ACLU ran faces of sitting U.S. Congress members through the program. 28 members of Congress were incorrectly identified as people who had been arrested for committing crimes. That same year, EFF joined with ACLU and a coalition of civil, civil liberties organizations to demand that Amazon stop powering government surveillance infrastructure with its flawed and invasive recognition program. While we welcome Amazon's half-step, we urge the company to finish the job. Like IBM, Amazon must permanently end its sale of this dangerous technology to police departments. There should be a nationwide ban on government use of face surveillance. Even if the technology were highly regulated, its use by the government would continue to exacerbate a policing crisis in this nation that disproportionately harms black Americans, immigrants, the unhoused, and other vulnerable populations. We agree that the government should act, and are glad that Amazon is giving them a year to do so but the outcome must be an end to the government use of this technology. The movement to ban face recognition is gaining momentum. The historic demonstrations of the past two weeks show that the public will not sit idly by while tech companies enable and profit off a system of surveillance and policing that hurts so many. Face recognition isn't the only problematic tool companies offer to police. Though Amazon has pressed pause on offering recognition to police, Amazon-owned Ring, the quote-unquote smart doorbell and camera company, still partners with over 1,300 police departments. These partnerships allow police to make batch requests for footage via email to every residence with a camera within an area of interest to the police, potentially giving police a one-step process for requesting footage of protests to identify protesters. These partnerships intensify suspicion, help police racially profile people, and enable and perpetuate police harassment of black Americans. And then they added this update. They said, a day after this post was published, Microsoft announced it won't sell facial recognition technology to police until a national law exists. This is a good step, but Microsoft must permanently end its sale of this dangerous technology to police departments. 
All right, I'm not sure really how much I can add to that. I think that really covered the bases. Facial recognition is just really super creepy, anti-private stuff. I mean, I understand how it could be used, um, but it's just so easy to abuse and it really sets up a major power imbalance. So anyway, I've, <laughs> I've beat this dead horse many times, but I wanted to read that article and kind of catch you up to date on the fact that some of these tech companies are finally coming around to the idea that, you know, hey, maybe this really isn't a good thing to be putting in the hands of law enforcement. All right, next up, the FBI is now warning us again, uh, as they've done recently, uh, about banking hacks. And now they uh, are warning us about some mobile banking hacks. And uh, before I even get into the story, I just want to say that banking online is still, generally speaking, safe and secure to do. We have the technology to securely do things like shopping, banking, and even medical stuff. Uh, online, either whether it's on your computer or on your mobile phone, uh, we have the encryption and, sec and security technology to make sure that that's safe. However, uh, if you aren't careful, and this article is going to talk about this, and I'll kind of circle back uh, with my own suggestions here at the end, if you're not careful, you can still fall victim. So let's, uh, let's read this article from Bleeping Computer. The U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation, or the FBI, today warned mobile banking app users that they will be increasingly targeted by hackers trying to steal their credentials and take over their banking accounts. The alert, published on the agency's Internet Crime Complaint Center, says that the increased usage of such apps during the pandemic could lead to more exploitation attempts targeting their users. The FBI is anticipating that threat actors will focus their attacks on mobile banking customers since most Americans are using such services for making payments, transferring funds, and cashing checks. And this is a quote from the FBI, quote, U.S. financial technology providers estimate that more than 75% of Americans used mobile banking in some form in 2019. Studies of U.S. financial data indicate a 50% surge in mobile banking since the beginning of 2020, unquote. The FBI anticipates that malicious actors will try to exploit new mobile banking customers using a wide variety of techniques, including, but not limited to, fake banking apps and app-based banking trojans. Mobile banking users who download an app-based banking Trojan onto their tablet or smartphone are usually asked to give it the permissions it requires to steal their information. Such malware does not go snooping around the victim's Android or iOS device, but instead, it will stay dormant and will only surface when the user opens a legitimate banking app on his device. And this is a quote. It says, At that time, the Trojan creates a false version of the bank's login page and overlays it on top of the legitimate app. Once the user enters their credentials into the false login page, the Trojan passes the user to the real banking app login page so they do not realize that they have been compromised, unquote. Fake banking apps, on the other hand, are impersonating the bank's real mobile apps and, once installed on a victim, victim's computer, will collect the user's credentials when they try logging in. Another quote from the FBI, they say, These apps provide an error message after the attempted login and will use smartphone permission requests to obtain and bypass security codes texted to users. U.S. security research organizations report that in 2018, nearly 65,000 fake apps were detected on major app stores, making this one of the fastest-growing sectors of smartphone-based fraud, unquote. The FBI says that users and organizations can easily defend against such attacks by taking several measures that will, f that will thwart the hacker's attempts. First, you should always download mobile banking apps straight from your bank's websites or official app stores such as Google's Play Store or Apple's iOS App Store, since all apps included are scanned for and checked for malicious behavior and content. Users are also advised to enable two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication if available since it will protect you against the vast majority of attacks. Director of Internet Security at Microsoft, Alex Weinhardt, said, quote, Your password doesn't matter, but MFA does. Based on our studies, your account is more than 99.9% .9 less likely to be compromised if you use MFA, unquote. 
Weinart also added that, quote, Use of anything beyond the password significantly increases the cost for attackers, and this is why the rate of compromise of accounts using any type of, any type of MFA is less than 0.1% of the general population, unquote. And the FBI's second recommendation is, using strong and unique passwords is another way for preventing your banking account from being hacked as it will block hackers from brute forcing their way into your account by trying passwords you used for other online services. And last but not least, the FBI urges users to immediately call their banks whenever they spot any suspicious behavior while using a bank, a mobile banking app. Okay, so uh, let me unpack that a little bit. So they talked about two different ways that they, the FBI is predicting the bad guys will try to get your banking credentials. Uh, first of all, is a Trojan. And so this is some sort of an app that you've downloaded from somewhere, and they're kind of alluding to the fact that if you don't really go to the Google Play Store or Apple's App Store, and there are, particularly for Android, there are other app stores out there. Those apps that are not, on, any apps that are not on those main two stores are just much more likely to be bad, or at least a lot less likely to be policed uh, and vetted. And what these apps do, and I think this is more prevalent on Android than on iOS, is they kind of lay in wait, uh, looking, waiting for the user to launch their legitimate banking app. So when they launch their legitimate banking app, and I don't know why the operating system allows this, but it does, they can intercept that event, basically, and pop up a window that overlays or sits on top of your real apps window. Um, so, so you've launched your app. You think that what's about to launch is your app, but instead what you get is this little kind of a shim, this other little fake thing that comes up in front of that app and probably looks just like your banking app where you enter your username and password. And of course, it's not really your app, but what they do in the background is they take that information, feed it into the app you really wanted to give it to, and then, you know, basically clicks return, right? So, and then gets out of the way. But in the meantime, what they've done is they've stolen your credentials and then they've sent them onto your real bank and then you're real, then you're basically logged into the real app and you, as far as you could tell, nothing happened. So that's the notion of a, of a banking Trojan app. And then the other one they talked about is just straight up fake apps. Like you go into the app store and you say, oh, I want to get the Wells Fargo app for my bank. And then there's the real one. And then there's a dozen fake Wells Fargo uh, apps and you, you pick the wrong one. And then when you try to log into that, it, of course, now has your credentials. So I will reiterate what they said you should do. And that is, of course, whenever you want to do online banking or anything, really anything, uh, go to the source. Uh, in this case, go to your bank to get to find their app, and I'm sure they will have a download link on that uh, on that website. Or you can, you know, make sure you use the official Google or Apple app stores to get your apps. They have at least done some vetting on those things, and you're much more likely to get the real app uh, and not one that's gonna that's gonna hack you. And then, of course, they talk about multi-factor authentication or two-factor authentication. I've been pushing that very hard as well uh, because it really is uh, a really great line of defense. Um, so even if you, if your password is cracked or they guess it or find some way to bypass the, you know, that login page, they still have to have another piece of information to get into your account, which generally means they would have to have access to your smartphone. And of course, using strong and unique passwords for all your websites so that if one website is, is, is hacked and they figure out that password that they can't then turn around and use that password somewhere else. All right. We've talked about those many times before, so let's move on. Now, we've talked about Brave Browser before, and when we've talked about which browsers are the most secure and private, um, while many browsers have done a really good job on security, privacy is a whole different matter, and that is really where Google Chrome uh, falls flat. And we're actually going to talk about them 
shortly. Uh, but the Brave browser was an attempt by some smart guys to address the actual real-world problem of these websites wanting to make some money for doing what they do because they've got to have money to stay in business. And the Internet way of doing that is to serve ads. But unfortunately, a lot of these ads certainly are very annoying, can often be used to track you and all your everything you do on the web, and can actually be laced with uh, malware. Uh, it's called malvertising. So Brave wanted to kind of come up with this, um, this method of compromise where you actually earn like attention tokens depending on how much time you spend on these sites and then based on that instead of based on you know tracking uh, they pay these websites some money to help keep them in business so it's supposedly a private a more private way to still kind of see ads um, but not track you anyway i've never really bought into the idea and interesting in concept, but I still personally prefer uh, using Firefox with some really good privacy plugins. And this, unfortunately, um, this article will give you one more reason not to use Brave. So let me read this from uh, Naked Security, which is the Sophos blog. The Brave browser has provoked unhappiness among some of its users after being caught redirecting searches to affiliate links that earned it commission. The first user to notice the issue was Kryptonator1337, who tweeted the following observation on the 6th of June. So when you're using the Brave browser and type in Binance.us, you end up getting redirected to Binance.us slash en question mark ref equals and some number. I see what you did there, mates. And let me just stop right there. So what he's saying is you typed in the web address you wanted to go to. Let's Binance.us happens to be a, a, a cryptocurrency site, I believe. But it could be any website. Many websites offer have these affiliate programs where they will basically pay you to get people to come to your website. And the way that they know that you sent them there is they would usually tag on this little this little reference, this little token, this little ID to the URL. So instead of going to Amazon.com, you go to Amazon.com question mark, and everything after the question mark are parameters that you can pass in that really don't affect where you're going, but it passes information to the site you're going to. Uh, and so after the question mark, they have, you know, my ID equals and it's some random identifier so that when you go to that website, Amazon.com, let's say, knows that, oh, Carrie, Carrie sent this person to me uh, or, you know, this person used, clicked on a link that Carrie provided. So we're going to, we're going to carry a little taste of the little taste of the action here. So, so the way these affiliate programs work is if you get people to click these links, you know, then the site you send them to gives you a little bit of money. Sometimes it's a direct amount of money just for getting there in the first place. And sometimes they actually give you a percentage, although small, uh, but basically give you a, a percentage of whatever that person happens to buy there as a result of clicking on that link. Anyway, so what this person is basically saying is, hey, I'm using Brave Browser and I entered this address. And, but when I did, somehow Brave's affiliate code got added to my link. All right, so let me get back to the article now that I've explained that. What this means is that Brave users searching for Binance, a cryptocurrency exchange, would have had their query auto-completed so that they ended up on a special version of the Binance homepage that lets the company know that Brave's address bar was the origin of that visit. Auto-complete, of course, is a feature all web browsers offer and is intended as a time-saving and normally uncontroversial convenience. But not long after, a second user discovered a GitHub page containing a code used to embed rival cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase, Trezor, and Ledger in the same way. At that point, Brave found itself fielding unhappy comments from users asking whether this behavior was consistent with the company's idealistic motto, quote, Brave for a better internet, unquote, and general championing of privacy. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Brave founder and CEO Brendan Eich, 
who is famous for creating JavaScript and helped co-founding Mozilla, quickly admitted a quote-unquote serious error of judgment, tweeting, the autocomplete default was inspired by search query client ID attribution that all browsers do, but unlike keyword queries, a typed-in URL should go to the domain named without any additions. Sorry for this mistake. We are clearly not perfect, but we correct course quickly, unquote. Default autocomplete should not have been added to redirect code, he agreed, but the mistake had been made as the company attempted to, quote-unquote, build a viable business. The market for browsers is a strange one that eats money and development costs, which raises the question as to why anyone would get into this as a business. For the big browsers, that would be Google's Chrome, Apple's Safari, and Microsoft's Edge, the answer is mainly to support Android, macOS, and Windows. But they're all commercial entities that earn money in one way or another from directing users to the big box of search engines. This is true even of Mozilla's Firefox, which supports its own idealistic values through an identical business model. And what they're referring to there is... Um, Mozilla Foundation uh, is a nonprofit, um, but they still need money to survive. They've got a lot of people developing their software. And so one of the things they do is basically make a deal with the devil, and that is they make Google the default search engine for Firefox, and Google pays them a lot of money to do that, which, yes, seems like a conflict of interest. And it's something I'm sure that the folks at Mozilla struggle with, and I know they're trying to replace, uh, replace that revenue in some other ways. But unfortunately, it's a fact of life for them, and basically what they say is, yes, it's a default, but you can easily change it to something else. And so that's kind of the trade-off they make. Anyway, back, let me finish this, let me finish the article. And then there is the newcomer Brave, which has styled itself as being an outsider and an innovator, right down to launching an entire Brave platform that hands out attention tokens to users in return for consuming advertising. It's a balancing act, with established browsers with higher market share having the luxury of ignoring the need to earn money from the act of browsing itself. Setting auto-completed search traffic to affiliates would have earned Brave fractions of a cent for each user who made that journey but without revealing anything about the user. What caused trouble here was that users wouldn't have realized this was happening unless they looked closely at the URL or the address. To some, this looked like a small but unnecessary deception. However, it remains true that smaller independent browsers face a struggle to survive. Some of the surprisingly large number kicking about below measurable statistics sell out and become ad machines whose ironic selling point is that they are not Google. Because of its we-are-different marketing, Brave has always been judged by higher standards. And that comes with the downside of greater scrutiny and disappointment when mistakes are made. Okay, so, you know, I don't know, and we probably never will know, you know, whether how this came about. It could have very well been some sort of an accident. There probably are other cases in which the Brave browser adds its, you know, affiliate ID to uh, web addresses. But somehow they managed to do it just on people doing, you know, starting to type in the address bar and, adding it there automatically with the autocomplete. So, you know, honestly, I don't think it would have been a big deal if Brave had just said, hey, we're doing this, and then giving people the option to turn it off. Again, these companies do need to make money, do need to make money somehow. And just by providing an affiliate link, that really isn't any kind of a privacy violation. It's just, hey, you know, as long as you're going to this website, if you want to support the Brave browser, you know, let us get a little bit of a kickback when you do it. But nevertheless, it kind of, you know, kind of egg on the face of Brave here, but it really just underscores the problem of the internet profit model. And that's why I always say that, you know, if we really want privacy, we're going we're to have to pay for it, like with money. Uh, and when you get the opportunity, you know, send these guys some money, support these things. You can actually donate to Mozilla right now. At the end of the day, we're going to have to put our money where our mouth is. 
All right, speaking of browsers and tracking, let's talk about Google. Uh, they've just been sued for $5 billion in damages uh, for tracking users when they supposedly were not doing so. But I think it's actually, <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Let me read you a shortish article from vice.com. If you've been browsing through some porn on a Google Chrome incognito window, assuming that the trail will be wiped clean the minute you exit it, you're in for some bad news. Turns out the incognito mode, which gives users the choice to search the internet without their activity being saved to the browser or device, is not really all that incognito. A class action lawsuit filed against the company on June 2nd claims that the internet giant illegally invades the privacy of users by tracking people, even when they choose to surf using the private mode. The lawsuit, which seeks at least $5 billion in damages, said that even when a user chose private browsing to have his data protected, Google used tracking tools like Google Analytics, Google Ad Manager, and other application and website plugins, including smartphone apps, to gather user data. The incognito mode in Google's Chrome gives users the chance to browse the internet without their activity being saved. But, and this is a quote from the complaint, it says, quote, Google tracks and collects consumer browsing history and other web acti activity data, no matter what safeguards consumers undertake to protect their data privacy, unquote. This helps Google learn about users' friends, hobbies, favorite foods, shopping habits, and even the most intimate and potentially embarrassing things they search for online, the complaint further said. The lawsuit was filed on behalf of three people in California, and while Google has faced several other lawsuits over its data collection, this one tries to use the Federal Wire Wiretap Act. The act states that users have the right to sue if their private conversations are intercepted. The lawsuit claims that Google intercepts the contents of communications between users and websites by collecting browsing history. And it also said that Google's practices deceived consumers into believing that they maintain control of the information shared with the company. And this is a quote from uh, Google spokesman Jose Castaneda uh, in the New York Times. And this quote, in this quote, he says, Incognito mode in Chrome gives you the choice to browse the Internet without your activity being saved to your browser or device. As we clearly state, each time you open a new incognito tab, websites might be able to collect the information about your browsing activity during your session, unquote. A joint study from Microsoft, Carnegie Mellon University, and the University of Pennsylvania last year investigated more than 22,000 sex websites, which most people visit with their private mode enabled, and revealed that 93% of these pages tracked and leaked users' data to third-party organizations. All right, so there's a few things I want to talk about there. So first of all, incognito mode. And I've talked about this before, but let's let's cover this again because it's really important. Uh, incognito mode is something that Chrome has. I think uh, Firefox calls it private browsing. Uh, each browser has its own marketing term for this. Um, certainly what it implies is when you're in this mode, and it usually launches a special window, and sometimes it looks special and different so that you know that this particular window is your private window, it implies unfortunately, that anything you do in that window, no one will ever know about. And that is just not true. All it is, all these modes are, all of them, is just a way to not leave any tracks on your current device. Which is to say that if someone, say your spouse, <laughs> was going to look at your browsing history or dig around in the browser in general, they should not be able to figure out that you had gone to whatever websites you went to in this mode. But that's it. It has, it has absolutely nothing to do with the privacy of anything basically outside of your device. Um, when you go to these websites, they still have ads. Those ads still track you. The websites themselves do as much as they can to fingerprint you and remember you and figure out as much as, about you as possible and save that information. 
Your internet service provider certainly knows where you went, unless you used a VPN. Really, it offers almost zero privacy, except for the one specific case of somebody using your mobile phone or your computer to try to figure out what websites you've been to. So really, honestly, anybody using incognito mode really should not have expected not to be tracked. However, this is a unique approach to this lawsuit because the trick here is that Google, the one tracking you, is also the company that makes the browser itself. So I think it certainly could be argued that since you told the browser that I want this to be private, that the browser, at least, should not be tracking you. And so this is why I can never, ever recommend Chrome as a browser that you should use. It's a privacy nightmare. No matter what settings you have, no matter what you've done, I would always assume that if you're using a Google Chrome browser, Google knows everything you're doing on that browser. So it's really, really hard to not be tracked on the internet these days. Really hard. But if you do want true privacy, first of all, don't use Chrome. Use Firefox. Use some privacy-protecting plugins like uBlock Origin, Privacy Badger, and DuckDuckGo Privacy Essentials, which, by the way, changes your default search engine from probably Google, to DuckDuckGo. And then you want to be using a VPN. And you need to be using a VPN service that is also privacy-respecting. I know that sounds like a contradiction in terms, but just because there's private in the name VPN, virtual private network, doesn't mean it's private for you. Whenever you use a VPN, all you're really doing is exchanging your trust for your internet service provider, which should be nil, for your trust in the VPN service provider. And not all VPN service providers are really private. And the ones that really are, you generally have to pay for. Okay, now, moving on. One more story, and then we'll get our, get to the tip of the week. So, Zoom, uh, which is now a household word, <laughs> um, has exploded in popularity during uh, the whole coronavirus period when we're all working and learning from home. And it's provided a very valuable service. Uh, I still don't understand how they rose above all the other such services that also already exist. Uh, that were actually arguably much better than Zoom. But I think the thing Zoom had going for it was it had a catchy name, it's extremely easy to use, and you don't have to even sign up for an account to use it. But nevertheless, uh, you know, they had a lot of growing pains as they scaled up to meet the astounding demand. And there were cracks in the armor. The, basically, we found out that there were privacy and security issues with Zoom. Now, to their great credit, they have hired some really kick-butt security people and they have changed a lot of their policies to make their uh, to make their video conferences much more secure. But despite that, security is not the same thing as privacy. Um, you can have you can have security without privacy, uh, but you can't really have privacy without security. And so, while they claim very loosely and in vague terms um, to try to imply that your conversations are completely encrypted. They sort of are, but they're not really. So they're kind of, I would, they're what I would call point-to-point -point encrypted and not end-to-end -end encrypted. And what I mean by that is, you know, as you're doing your video conference, you're sending and receiving data to and from the internet. And that data is, you know, your video and your audio. Between your device and Zoom itself, that data is encrypted. It is not encrypted at Zoom which means that anybody at Zoom with the proper privileges could look in or listen in on 
your conferences, potentially after the fact. They're probably recorded. Or at least you should assume they could be recorded. So while it's secure in the sense that, you know, your internet service provider and all the various computer network hops between you and Zoom, and then between Zoom and all the people you're talking to in your video conference, even though each of those individual legs are encrypted, the data is not encrypted from endpoint to endpoint, from my device to their device. Uh, it is it has some stopping off points, some layoffs, some layovers on some servers where there is no encryption. So Zoom, obviously realizing this is a much desired feature, as well it should be, is going to be offering this. And they actually bought a company called Keybase, which really a very interesting company, which I was actually planning to talk about on the show, but they bought Keybase, and now I'm really not sure what the future of Keybase is. Um, it's another kind of encrypted private messaging system like Signal with some really interesting um, differences. But uh, now I would say that feature is uncertain. However, those are really smart people, and so they're bringing them in to add this end-to-end encryption. But according to Zoom CEO, uh, that will only be available to paying customers, which I just think is horrid. I Honestly, I think they're going to get enough pushback on this, that, and I hope that they're going to change this and make it available to everybody. But here's the weird part. The reason he says he wants to do this, according to an article from Bloomberg, is that he wants to be able to support law enforcement, but only for free customers, apparently. (laughs) So the quote was uh, from the CEO, it says, free users, for sure, we don't want to give that because we also want to work together with FBI, with local law enforcement, in case some people use Zoom for bad purposes, unquote. So if you pay for Zoom, then you're not going to use it for bad purposes? It really makes no sense. And honestly, it's, it's like a lot of things in this country, unfortunately, so far without regulations on privacy, uh, is that it's become a luxury good. It's something that people who have the money can pay for. And if you don't have the money, well, then you have to pay for it some other way. And that's basically paying for it with your privacy. So that's why we need some regulations. So anyway, if you're looking, if you know, if you care about your privacy and I think you should, and I you know, as I always say, you know, even if you don't really think that your conversations are worth spying on, um, it's still important that you kind of register your disdain for surveillance and your support for individual privacy. And that's why you want to use some of these other products. And the the ones I'm about to recommend are actually both free. They're both from nonprofit organizations. They're they're both excellent. And that, of course, is Signal. I've talked about that many, many times in the show. They're, They're originally a messaging app, but now they've added voice and video as well. And another one that I honestly had not heard of until COVID-19 hit, and it's called Jitsi, J-I-T-S-I. And it's really just as simple as Zoom to use. Uh, all you need to do is set on a link, and anybody with that link can join the meeting. You can set passwords. And uh, the nice thing about Jitsi is it's absolutely 100% end-to-end encrypted. All right, so that's the news for the week. And now let, let's get to my tip of the week, and that is about voting by mail. So this year's election in 2020 in the United States is arguably or maybe even inarguably, the most important election in modern times, for many reasons. Not all, not all of which are purely political. But unfortunately, we are in a state of pandemic. For many people, going out in public is just not safe. We don't have a vaccine. It's a very communicable disease. And standing in line for hours waiting to vote is, is not a good way to remain healthy. And so, you know, we want to somehow be able to securely and privately be able to vote remotely. And so, you know, in the modern day era, most people immediately think, 
well, let's let's do online voting. We've got online banking. We've got online shopping. We've got online medical stuff. You know, certainly if we can do all those things, we could somehow manage to also securely do online voting. And I don't want to get into all the specifics. In fact, I'm really trying to get somebody on the show to talk about this explicitly. Um, but my main contacts have fallen through. Uh, but I'm still working on that, and I don't want to get into that too much right now. Um, but just take my word for it. Many, many security experts um, have said that uh, online voting is just way too hard to secure. And the difference is, uh, I will say this, it's not the same as banking. It's not the same as shopping. What you're trying to protect is very different in this case. You're really, it's not just security. It's also privacy and esoteric things like not being able to prove to a third party how you voted so that you could perhaps sell your vote. Anyway, again, not going to get into that now. Hopefully we'll dig into that in depth in a future episode with a, an expert interview. But the other option then obviously is uh, absentee voting, voting by, voting by mail. I believe all states allow this in some form. Um, I could be, I, maybe I'm wrong about that, but many states, more than half certainly do. And hopefully, you know, with what's going on now, the rest of the states will get on board because this really is the best way to do it. Um, I know that our president and the others have been saying that this is, uh, you know, voting by mail is just inviting all sorts of fraud, but the, the, the real data does not back that up. But again, let's, let's try to leave that aside for now. Let's just, from a purely safety standpoint, you should be looking at voting by mail. And here's the key. You want to do it now. You want to do it soon. Most states will allow you to uh, request your absentee ballot way in advance. And even if you do request that ballot, that doesn't mean you have to vote that way. You can still go vote in person if you want to. So, you know, the idea being cover your bases, cover your butt, order your absentee ballot now. And when the time comes, you now have that option. You have the choice of which way do you want to vote in person or by mail. But there are other reasons to do it now as well. Uh, and that is, first of all, you want your state and your county to understand the demand that they are going to be seeing for voting by mail as early as possible. So they can prepare to have people and machines and uh, logistically be ready to count, you know, potentially massive amounts of absentee ballots where way more than they would in any normal year. And then also what that does is it gives, you know, them a heads up, including uh, news organizations, uh, of the popularity of absentee, ballot, uh, of absentee ballots, which will sort of be a, a virtuous cycle. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll show up in the news more, people will learn about it more, people will then request more absentee ballots, and it will just feed on itself. And the sooner we start that process, the better. So how do you do that? It's actually fairly easy. Uh, it's every state is slightly different. So the most generic thing you can do to figure this out is just go to your, uh, go to your web browser and search for absentee ballot form and then add on your state. So for me, absentee ballot form, North Carolina, and that will almost surely, uh, lead you to your state's probably your secretary of state website or whatever organ, whatever agency in your particular state runs your local elections. Uh, take you to their site and take you to the place where you need to download the form, fill it out and send it in requesting your absentee ballot. But let me give you a slightly, well, in my view, much better option. Though once I describe it, you may not feel it that way, but it's called vote.org. And it's something that I uh, wasn't actually familiar with until just recently when I've been doing some reading on this. And vote.org is an interesting site. So when you go in and you say, you know, I want to request my absentee ballot form. They will ask you a bunch of personal information uh, that they need 
because what they're basically going to do is when you tell them where you live, uh, they will go find your form for your state and fill it out for you and then give you a downloadable PDF that you can just print. And, uh, and they also tell you where to mail it, but it doesn't stop there. And that's why this site is really interesting. So, uh, you may not think this is going to be fun, but I think, I think it's necessary because, uh, in the U S since the 1970s, I had to look this up since the 1970s, our voter turnout in presidential elections, I'm not even talking off year elections, just, you know, for the, you know, what most people would say are the most important or most consequential elections that we have every four years in the United States, Voter turnout in the United States since the 1970s is barely over 50%. That's just abysmal. That's that's just horrible. Uh, you know, it's the most fundamental democratic thing you can do. We are in a republic. That means we need to pick our representatives to represent us. And if we don't, you know, we're ceding that to somebody else. So these guys, this vote.org people, they're, they are dead serious. They're not just about being convenient. They're, they're going to nag you until you, you know, not only do they send you the form, but they will repeatedly nag you. Cause I did this. They will repeatedly nag you to send that form in, you know, have you sent the form in yet? You really need to send the form in. Have you sent that form in yet? <laughs> and, you know, they will also tell you how to register. They will send you reminders about, uh, when the elections are and how to get there. You know, if you still want to vote in person, Basically, they're going to be, you're hiring, think of it as hiring a personal trainer for your democracy. Part of you doesn't want it, but another part of you knows you really need it. And in this case, it's free. So again, that's vote.org. Check it out. Uh, you know, I would recommend going that way, especially if you think you're on the fence about voting. Recommend it to other people who may also be on the fence about voting. Because uh, many studies have shown that actually mail-in voting is, is one of the most effective ways to increase voter turnout. And before I go, here's one more bonus tip. Uh, if you are young and healthy, volunteer to work the polls this year. There are so many benefits for this. Personally, you get to learn and kind of see how the process goes. There's, It's really fascinating. I did it once when I was in high school, and I'm actually going to plan to try to do it again this year. It's been so long. I definitely want to do it again. But you get to see how, <laughs> how the sausage is made. It's actually, it's not ugly in that sense. It's probably a bad metaphor, but it really gives you some insights in, into the very basics uh, of your democracy and how things work. And, uh, you know, I think statistically, and I haven't looked this up, but I'm pretty sure this is true. A lot of the folks that man the, uh, the voting stations tend to be retirees, which means they tend to be older folks. And this year in particular, there are probably going to be a lot of them who, who do, don't do it to, for their own safety. So if you were ever, ever going to consider doing it, this is the year to do it. All right, that's going to do it this week. Thanks for tuning in. We had some really important stuff to cover today. Uh, we've got another big interview coming up next week. It's actually a first. It's the first time I've ever done a, um, a three-way interview. We'll be talking to Adam Levin, who is the founder and uh, chairman of CyberScout, a uh, cybersecurity organization. Uh, but uh, we've talked to him before. And we're also going to bring on his chief privacy officer, Edward Goodman. And these guys are good friends, and they obviously like to riff on uh, back and forth on stuff. So they, so it was really kind of interesting interview. Um, but um, we'll be doing that next week, and it will definitely be a two-parter. So uh, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss that or any future episodes. And of course, while you're there, even if you've already subscribed, uh, again, I could always use some good reviews on the podcast. Please stop by, throw a few stars out there for me. It really helps the podcast get noticed. 
Now, I'm wrapping up the fourth edition of the book. Hopefully, it will be out in September of this year. Uh, the book has 13 chapters. Uh, the, fourth, the fourth edition will also have that many chapters. So I've gone through the first 10 chapters. I have three left to finish uh, in terms of my first draft. And then there's some back and forth editing and stuff. But I'm getting there. And so if you want to kind of follow along and get some insights into this, and I think, I think if you sign up, you can get previous posts as well. But at a certain level at patreon.com, if you sign up, um, I'm kind of giving you a, a behind-the-scenes look into how this whole process works of, of writing a book. And I will say, uh, with, the, with the publishing date here coming up soon, there's, if you sign up at the, at the right level at patreon.com, you will actually, uh, I will send you a signed copy of the book when it comes out. And I think, uh, I think I may also have to do a contest around that. I'd love to get some more of those out there as well. So I think I'll maybe do a contest as well and see if we can get some folks to uh, get signed copies that way. All right, everybody, that's going to do it. Uh, tune in next week for that uh, two-part interview with uh, the folks from CyberScout. And until then, as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay home if you, if you possibly can, and don't get caught with your garbage down.